This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Beehive Banter is back from our Parliament studio whilst the PM finishes his week-long trip to China, and we'll get to that shortly. But first, another week, another minister. Last week, Michael Wood's accusations now of problems with working relationships in Kitty Allen's office and her needing to take a mental health break. Although that apparently is now over and she's back. But questions won't go away. Will they, MBR's political editor, Brent Edwards? No, probably not. There are a number of unanswered questions. As you said, she has been on uh, stress leave, but that was before this became all public. She came back Thursday morning um, and appeared in select committee and then got asked about the matter, actually. Um, But it all relates at the moment as far as what's been really made public is a Department of Conservation staffer who was seconded to her office, apparently unhappy there, whatever, the relationship wasn't great, and... So finished their secondment earlier than they were meant to. But that was over a year ago. Uh, The Department of Conservation says since they haven't had any issues. Uh, At the select committee, um, Kerry Allen was there as Regional Development Minister talking about the Provincial Growth Fund and the reset, and she had the MB Chief Executive, Carolyn Tremaine there, who made the comment that in terms of the relationships of their staff in that office, there were no issues or concerns any different with any minister's office in this place. I mean, it does have to be said there's been no formal complaints laid about Kerry Allen. In fact, she didn't even really know what was going on. Yeah, no, yeah, no formal complaints. So it's a bit hard to say, well, what was going on? It was that someone came into an office and they just didn't get on with a few people. You know, that happens. We, we've all been in workplaces. Or, or was it some systemic bullying. I mean, it's never been fully cleared what supposedly was the allegation Look, A lot of things aren't David. here, mate. A lot of things uh, aren't clear here. Who else is on stress leave that we don't know about? Well, I'm, I'm not sure, Grant, but... Um, <laughs> Who else is missing that we don't know about? That we don't know about? Oh, and then the Prime Minister's missing. Is he on stress leave? I don't know. No, oh, he's I in China. He to China, that's right. Uh, right, well, let's go then from Kitty Allen to uh, Jan Donetti. Uh, the Prodigies Committee. Uh, her actions arose from a high degree of negligence. A high degree of negligence. However, they said, not guilty of contempt, but she has to apologise. It reminds me of the Republicans uh, with Trump, when, of course, he's you know, no impe- he's not going to be impeached. Why? Oh, because we, we have control of the House. Are you, are you saying Jan Tonetti's like Trump? No, I'm saying, it's, I'm saying this, the, the committee... Uh, is, the Bridges Committee has more Labour people on it. They were never going to find her guilty of contempt. Yeah, Perhaps. I mean, and well, the funny thing is, basically, they're saying she's inept. Therefore, that wasn't it wasn't intent. <laughs> well, which no, is worse? Essentially, they, no, essentially, that's the finding. She's inept. It wasn't intentional. Therefore, we're not going to find contempt. Just say sorry. It's all over. I mean, in the context of some of the things that goes on in Parliament, I mean, you know, I don't think it was something where you'd have to expect her to fall on her sword and and uh, leave her job because of it. Actually, it wasn't of that serious a note. Um, but, you know, fair play to the Speaker who raised it and sent it on to the Privileges Committee. It's a message to all ministers that they tr- must must get their answers right, and if they don't get them right, they must correct them as soon as they can. Because, you know, people expect, accept that sometimes ministers make mistakes, or they're given wrong information, but when they know it's wrong, you know, they've got to come back to Parliament and make a correction sooner rather than later. So what we've learned here 
is that if you're a minister and you go to the Privileges Committee, as long as you're inept, you're okay. Yeah, essentially. So most oh, ministers are okay. Great. <laughs> and that, 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 that's across all governments. Yes, all right. Back to the PM. Uh, so the trip to China seemed to go great guns, didn't it? Uh, even Luxon thought it went well. <sighs> Highlights? Yeah. Well, highlight was Luxon saying it went well, wasn't it? Well, I mean, I think most times these overseas trips are generally good for Prime Ministers. There's normally a lot of stuff that's predetermined. So the announcements that they've made would have all been done before he you got there. You mean they didn't know another airline was going to fly to New Zealand? Airlines, you know, a cooperation on forestry and that and what have you. But, I mean, one of the interesting things, though, is it's sort of, you know, it's this thing about, oh, isn't it great the Prime Minister got an audience with President Xi? You know, this is fantastic. Yeah. That same day, President Xi met with three other leaders, Mongolia, Vietnam and Barbados. Who was the most and, important on and, that list? And, well, you know, in a sense, probably you might say Vietnam maybe in terms of relationships, but, but I mean... So and, not New Zealand. I, and most of the statements that were put out were quite similar, great friendship, unity, but it was, but still, it, but it is good and it was a real focus on improving and strengthening the relationship. So given, given China's size, its impact in the region... You know, it is important that New Zealand maintains good relationships with China. That doesn't mean not raising issues of concern. Oh, yeah, but we all know what they are. But there's no point going in and browbeating them, you know, to score points, if you like. No, because they might tell us off, like they may or may not have done with another certain minister. Well, we've had that before, but, I mean, you know, there's a a way you get your message across to China. and That's right. That's by not calling him uh, the leader a dictator. Dictator, that's right. That's right. And, of course, then, of course, the movement on the FTA with the European Union came while they were over there giving giving it green lights. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, again, uh, you you come back, actually, to... um, Christopher Luxon's comments about New Zealand being insular, inward-looking and what have you. But on the trade front, this government has... You look at the trade agreements that it's negotiated and signed. I know, it's great, isn't it? It, Well... They're amazing. Well, I mean... It wouldn't have happened under any other government. Well, it's happened under this government. It's happened under this government, and, you know, to be honest... There were nine years of national and you didn't get the same level. So, uh, uh, Moving right along now. Hopefully Chris Hipkins will get back and the plane doesn't break down. Although, as we now know, he had a replacement plane in standby, of course. And his replacement uh, PM, meanwhile, was holding a press conference earlier this week, basically admitting the government's failure at holding costs in any way at all. Proven by a $6 million boost to food banks. So saying, sorry, can't fix it. Here's some money. Now, here's what uh, the Deputy Prime Minister said. She put it into context. That's enough for 30,000 families to buy one week's shopping at $200, Brent, she said. What do they do the following week? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not actually, it's not a huge amount of money. I mean, it's, it, it is just a No, what do they do the following well, week? Well, the following, I mean, food banks get money from all sorts of places, including donations from individuals, Grant. And if you wanted to reach into your pocket, you could possibly donate too. But, I mean, it was... It did seem actually a small amount for, and in that sense, you know, if you talk about cost of living, maybe the government doesn't think the cost of living crisis is so bad if it's only $6 million. Well, they think the education sector is bad because if that wasn't enough, universities, of course, up the creek without a paddle, about to lay off hundreds, and then, then, I almost feel like a trumpet should come in now. Don't worry, says the government riding their white horse. We'll save you. $128 $128 million over two years with the government insisting it's not a bailout. Well, what else is it? Well, it's funny, though. The $128 million was money already budgeted for the universities in the budget, 
But they weren't going to get it... Because they didn't qualify for it. They weren't going to get it under the funding formula because it's all based on bums on seats. Which means they, they didn't qualify for it. And their enrolments have fallen. So they weren't so going to get it. So the government now is going to give that money. But it's not new money, if you like. It's not The government hasn't had to find that money from somewhere to save the universities. I mean, one of the things that's come out in the conversation too, though, is you know maybe a bit more focus on the universities themselves and how they've managed their own money. A lot of talk about the amount of money they spend on um, marketing marketing and on... You've got a market to get people there. And on buildings. Well, that's actually the most important probably part of the announcement this week was not so much the money amount, but was the fact they're going to review the funding formula for universities. And I would think that they'll move away from that per student sort of funding basis because yep. that's proven, it's, as I think as some have said, it's been an incentive for people to f- compete with one another for students. So they end up spending a whole lot of money competing with universities around the country rather than cooperating and collaborating more about providing the best possible tertiary education. Yeah. And of course, the, the, of course, the government then also saved the North Island ski industry. Well, yeah, I know. And I mean, um, it's just, boy, what else can they save? Well, uh, also, um, Roger McClay's trying to save the trout um, trout industry, which will be of great interest to you, that you'll be able to keep on fishing for trout. Yes. In terms of the RMA reform bills that yes, have been reported Yes, I, I read that. that about n- trout not being allowed in certain rivers. Yes. Mm, it's not even well, it get, won't keep, won't, No, I don't because be I'll be happy. here all day if you get me started on that. Uh, now, we need to mention the National Party Conference uh, last weekend and that old chestnut, that get tough on crime thing, um, stop some discounting prison sentences and then that big... God, they can't. Well, they can't do anything without a faux pas. They said they'd give remand prisoners rehabilitation, not knowing Labor had already that underway. Already. Well, how do they? How do they not know? I mean, Luxon looked flummoxed. Talking about national, I just do have to correct myself. I said Roger McClay. Of course, it's Todd McClay, his son. Roger was a national MPM minister in the nineties. But back to the crime. Uh, the, um, it's the only mistake you've ever made. I know the tough on crime approach. Yeah, I mean they did look actually um, on both uh, Christopher Luxon, but also more importantly, um, his police spokesperson also looked kind of, oh, oops. Duh, what? what? Like a Homer Simpson moment. Yeah. Duh. So, I mean, they, it probably doesn't matter, frankly. Most people won't take much note of that. They'll just look at the policy and think it's, no, but it, for those who think crime's out of control, they think, yeah, we should be getting tough with the criminals. But it's it's not a great look. And the other thing was, you know, they didn't have any costings around because clearly yeah. it's going to cost them more. They should have at least had some basic costings around what they'd expect in terms of how many more prisoners would remain in yeah. prison longer and what that would mean for the prison population. Therefore, what would that mean for costs? It just shows they're not prepared. So, it just looks like they're not prepared. Well, they've got a, a little bit of a problem when they continually attack the government over it not managing the finances Correct. very well if they get caught out on matters like Correct. that. Correct. We have to agree on that one. Now, Beehive Banter goes online on a Friday morning normally, so depending uh, whether you're reading or when you're reading or listening or watching this, I hope you filled out the car because the fuel tax cut is either about to disappear or has already. And that, of course, will make the truck costs go up. They'll pass that on, which means food will go up, which means inflation will go up, blah, blah, blah. Explain to me, Brent, how the Reserve Bank's going to look through all that. Well, the Reserve Bank will just see it as a one-off hit. So it, it will more than likely look through it because it just happens once and then that's it. Okay. Uh, now, I, I'm going to do a prediction. A prediction? Yep. You, you, now you're predicting all to do which, which no. minister is going to get into trouble no, next. No, 
because it's too hard to say. <laughs> It'll be one of them. <laughs> no, um, after that fuel increase, that you know, 29 cents and all the rest of it, now we're going to see a change in the results in polls. Labor's going to come. Down. Oh, okay, down. How far? How? Give us a number. Come on, give us a number. Far enough, possibly, for me to be wrong in my other prediction that there'll be a hung parliament. <laughs> just, just saying. All right, two weeks recess now. Now, there's not enough time to lose, yes, another couple of ministers in two weeks. Uh, and I was just wondering, what else will the government save over that time? I mean, I'm a bit broke. Are you broke? Because, you know, we, we need a bit of saving. And as usual, uh, it's been a pleasure watching or listening. And with so much happening, uh, I was wondering, Brent, whether it's almost worth us doing this more often. But then the government would have to fund it. But uh, at the moment... They might. They're funding everything else. Somehow, I don't think so. With a go. <laughs> Thanks for watching and listening. See you soon. Nostalgia always plays a part in election campaigns, with political parties often harking back to some golden yesteryear. We should vote as full for it. Let's bring in MBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. So, Brent, what's this most recent piece of nostalgia? Well, I guess if you look at the National Party's theme around, you know, um, get New Zealand back on track, and it, it's as though somehow New Zealand has stopped. And, and you take up, again, the comments that um, Christopher Luxon had made about New Zealand becoming a inward, insular, inward-looking, whining sort of country, as though somehow in the past there was this much more outward-looking, sort of confident country. Um, and... And, I mean, it's used often. I mean, the, the Labour Party does the same thing. If you look at policies, it's been pushing, I guess, around um, employment law, you know, going back to what policies that might be more akin to what we saw in the 1970s, 80s and what have you. You know, funny enough, the sort of return to the past that, that National wouldn't want. Um, but particularly around the issue around crime, it's a sense that we're now a crime-ridden country, whereas in the past we were this peaceful, didn't have to worry about crime. You know, not quite really true, but it's a thing that politicians have used. I mean, I, I, probably the best example of it, in a way, would have been Donald Trump in the 2016 US presidential election, you know, the make America great again, you know, sort of take it back to the good old days when it was great. And, and that clearly worked for him in that election. I mean, it's, it, you know, I think you see it quite often in campaigns, it's this sense of kind of, giving people a sense that somehow they've lost something in the past, but these, these particular political parties will bring it back. Yeah, so it's factually not correct. Was there ever a golden era? Well, I don't think there's ever been a golden era um, in New Zealand. I mean, you know, things have changed. There are always challenges. There are always problems. If, if you look back to the... I mean, if you look back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, for instance, we were probably very much an inward-looking country, largely a farm for the United Kingdom. That changed with the UK um, entering the common market, and suddenly that you know, what we'd relied on just disappeared. And that did force New Zealand to be much more outward looking. You know, that led on to things like CER and then a, a range of um, free trade negotiations, you know, through, and you know, recently under this, this government, of course, you know, CPTP, um, the RCEP, UK Free Trade Agreement, EU, upgrade of China. So, you know, in, in the sense of trade sense, not that inward looking. 
Um, but, you know, one of our key strategic partners, the United States, you probably would describe more as whining and inward-looking, particularly when it comes to trade. Do all political parties take this sort of approach? I think pretty much all political parties do sort of have this, um, extol some part of the past which, you know, people will... Um, particularly, I think, because, you know, a lot of... Well, a key part of the vote is is older, and so they te- older people tend to be more nostalgic. I know this than <laughs> younger people, thinking back to the good old days. So you know, so it kind of rever- you know it resonates with voters, um, and at the same time, of course, what most political parties are doing are focusing very much on the problems of today. Because again, for most voters. That's what resonates. People who can't afford to buy the groceries, you know, so the cost of living crisis, can't afford to pay the mortgage. Clearly, those are the things they're most worried about. So, you know, future-looking sort of policies don't tend to get such a big push because there are things out in the future we're more worried about than now. Mm. And sometimes the now is we can look back to the past and think things were better then or why can't we have that back again? Well, how much is all this affected by the three-year electoral cycle? Well, the three-year electoral cycle does mean that um, parties, political parties always continue to focus on today and what they can do to keep voters in check. Um, you know, there's been the argument if you if you extended it to four years, political parties would perhaps do less politicking and campaigning and they would be much more focused on longer-term policies because they weren't having to face an election so so soon after getting elected. Um, so, you know, that, that, you know that, there's an argument that that does actually make our political parties sort of much more focused on the, the here and now rather than perhaps planning a bit more for the future. Will there be any other slogans... This election campaign, do you think? Oh, there'll be other slogans. I don't think we haven't seen the Labour Party's mm. was, slog- do this. slogan yeah. yet. I mean, obviously, um, if you think back f- um, the in, in 2017, it was, um, you know, Jacinda Ardern, let's do this. I mm. mean, most of the slogans, frankly, are meaningless, but they are used to somehow excite some sort of sense in voters about what it means. And, um, you know, no, so I... We'll wait and see what Labor comes up with, but you know there'll be plenty of slogans. But I think again there'll be probably plenty of um, times where there is this sort of reference back to some kind of mythical past when things were so much better, and you know we could get there again if we had the right sort of policies. Brent Edwards, thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Has National Party leader Christopher Luxon hit the right note with his strong focus on law and order? NBR columnist Bridget Morton thinks so, and she joins me now. So what, why has he got it so right on, you know, law and order and, I guess, getting tough on crime? Well, I think without a doubt he's caught a little bit of the sort of zeitgeist in terms of there has been increasingly concern building over the last, I would say, year about the crime rate and I think the violence of crime that we're seeing in New Zealand and some uniqueness too, you know, we haven't really experienced things like ram raids, so they've become really shocking to people and are leading the, one, the 6 o'clock news and all of that kind of stuff. I think then combined with the fact that, you know, Labor's really on the back foot here, they came in 
with a big reform program that was meant to not be sort of soft on law and order, but was meant to sort of reform the system so that we'd get better outcomes. And they just haven't been able to demonstrate that they have actually done that. And then I think combined with the sort of third factor, which is the fact that they put out a policy that wasn't just sort of a, a one hit. It had quite a lot of aspects to it. And so it was difficult for anyone to kind of question any part of the policy because it did speak to victims. It did talk to sort of the punishment. It did talk to, you know, rehabilitation. But the one issue that did get raised, though, was what was the cost? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is always a weakness that opposition policies, regardless of the party, always have because they're so difficult to, to cost up. I think... A, it was difficult for Labor to make that argument in terms of, well, currently they are you know, spending a lot of money without sort of any restriction on it. So it's hard for them to sort of lecture, I say, on fiscal prudence as such. But ultimately for the opposition, their answer was the fact that, well, there's capacity in the system and also we're willing to pay the money to get this done because it's so important. And I think for most people, they don't see locking up violent crimes as a waste of money. But from National's perspective as you referenced the, the issue with Labor, but they're making a big thing of that they'll be much better managers of the economy and much better managers of the government's books, and yet they can't provide a costing. And presumably, for instance, over the policy of having tougher sentences where they would restrict the discretion of judges from you know cutting sentences by 60% to 40%, you could have looked at the previous year and worked out well, what would that have meant in terms of more people in jail for longer. Yeah, and I think the answer to that was something along the lines of the fact that because the Labor government has reduced the prison population, you've got lag in that system. So in terms of what your capital investment is, it's not really needed anything more there. So it is an operational expense, and it is quite hard to model because it really depends on how many people are in remand and things. I do think it's a weakness of them, though, that they did put out a policy without any sort of costings around it or any kind of variations around it. I think that probably would have strengthened it a lot. Was it also, I mean, at the annual conference um, to make that the centrepiece of a speech in terms of a policy announcement, you know, rather than something perhaps a little bit more positive about growing the economy. Well, I think it kind of fits into their wider narrative. You know, what was big at conference was back on track. And this is about getting New Zealand back to being that safe place, you know, that New Zealanders all enjoy. So they need to do something that looked like they were correcting the mistakes made by the current government. I think it's difficult for them to sort of, you know, the biggest issue we know is cost of living. That's really hard to make a nice, snappy policy announcement around because it's so nuanced. So I think this is the sort of next place to go. And I think it probably was targeted quite rightly at those sort of people that are at the conference, the base along with cutting through in terms of a lot of people are worried about this. And, and what the message to the base, I suppose the delegates, is to enthuse them to go back to their electorates to do the work campaign through to October 14. I think without a doubt the conferences are always about the delegates and I always sort of lecture about the fact that it's not really there for the media or the wider audience. But I do think that without a doubt being so close to the election that they wanted to use the opportunity of having that big crowd, having all of those MPs and candidates standing behind Luxon to show that they had a unified strong message. And I think this you know, covers off, I don't think you'd find anyone within that caucus or the candidates who had disagreed with what was announced on Sunday. I mean coming back to law and order though is it much different to previously I mean law and order always comes up as an issue doesn't it I mean particularly frankly when Labor's in government and basically national and act and opposition 
will always play up law and order issues. Yeah, I think without doubt, law and order is always one of those top issues. You know, you talk about the economy, health, education, law and order. I think those are always the kind of key ones that people you know look for in terms of an election. I think the difference, particularly for this election, is that if you look at the polling, law and order has gone from being an issue that's sort of down a little bit up to sort of number two, you know, creeping up on sort of cost of living as being a major issue for people. And, you know, going back to what I was sort of saying earlier, that we've seen a lot of, I think, particularly violent and you sort of unique crimes that we weren't used to seeing that has really turned people on going, right, this is my backyard. It's at the Albany, you know, restaurants where that axe attack happened. It's ram raids on Michael Hurl and my local mall that really have people concerned. It's not for some of those dodgy neighbourhoods down the road or different parts of New Zealand. It's literally where I'm growing, where my family's growing up, and that has people worried. Bridget Morton, thank you for your time. Just how different will climate change policy look like if the National Party leads the next government? I'm joined by National's climate change spokesperson, Simon Watts. I mean, you've already signalled a number of changes, um, for instance, with with agriculture. Uh, What will that mean, though? I mean, are you diluting what's there already? No, look, uh, if you stand back and look at the way in which we've approached our climate change policy, we've identified the big drivers of what our emissions are across our economy and we've put in place policies that deal with those large buckets of emitters and the agricultural policy uh, is obviously a key component of our overall total emissions uh, and we've put in place a pathway and a process in which we see how we'll deal with those emissions and part of that's to provide the you know this the market with certainty around how we will deal with it but also send a clear signal I think in terms of the importance and the boldness of where a national-led government sits around dealing with climate change and reducing emissions, uh, because we were one of the first parties to release policy uh, in these in these um, areas, and I think that sends a signal in itself. But but that pathway, you're going to delay it by up to five years, aren't you? Look, what we're recognising is is that the solutions in order to achieve the reduction in emissions, many of which do not exist uh, today, and we need a to be pragmatic around the time that it will take in order to achieve and identify what those solutions are. I think we've put in place a a stick in the sand and saying we need to have this done by 2030. We've been very clear if the solutions are available before that, then we will absolutely look to to get that in place. We've got steps around looking at methane measurement uh, coming in in 2024. Uh, This sets the the groundwork required. Uh, And I think the conversations with the sector is that the sector are actually already know this is the direction of travel. We need to get to this point. And actually a lot of that's been driven by global uh, uh, demand requirements on our goods. So this is a trade issue as much as it is a local uh, consideration around climate change targets. Um, but, you know, I'm confident that we can work with the industry, not against it, to achieve the goals. I mean, I mean part of the, the tools, uh, you're obviously going to look, um, change or relax the, the rules around GE technologies. But with that and, and with the issues around <coughs> emissions from farms, do you, do you agree that there is a potential trade risk to, to New Zealand's international brand overseas? Well, look, I think there is a risk if if New Zealand was signalling that we're not going to do anything in this space. And that is completely the opposite of what we are doing. You know, we've said in our policy clearly, doing nothing is not an option. uh, And we do need to be bold in terms of the action we take. Within our policy, we've talked about sequestration around on-farm emissions and the fact that if we can measure and monitor it, then we should be looking to capture that. That is an area that isn't... So that would be any tree anywhere or any, you know... 
Yeah, look, there's a, the examples around uh, wetlands uh, on farm, and I think the reality, what that recognises, is that actually our agricultural sector has and continues to do good stuff in the space around environment that does have benefits in terms of reduction of climate emissions, uh, and we should, at a government level, be able to recognise that benefit, uh, and that's what we've got included within our policy. And, and at the same time, of course, you've also made those, you would make those changes in terms of restricting the conversion of productive farmland to plantational carbon forests, right? Yeah, look, you know, as an urban MP, uh, the, the social licence that sits out there around planting of exotic uh, forestry on productive farmland, I think, is just not an area where uh, any Kiwi is, is keen to uh, progress down that line. So our policy is very clear, and we've set some clear um, you know, riverbanks in terms of where it is appropriate to plant uh, exotic forestry and where it's not going to be. And I think that sends a signal to us is that, one, we've acknowledged that that's the issue and that's a challenge in our communities uh, but we also need to respect the private property rights of, of people that own that land uh, and I think we've found a, a good balance in terms of our policy around where that line sits. I mean the government has also announced some changes to that but also now put out this uh, review paper on changes to the ETS mm. which I guess would, would strengthen that. What do you make of those proposed changes to the emissions trading scheme? Yeah, well, firstly, around the forestry announcements that the government have made, they're very much focused in the consenting aspect around the process. And we see that this that is in itself a, another conversation for another day, but a hugely complex and, and area of which you know the RMA reforms are, are going to be worse, not better, uh, as are currently tabled. But in regards to the consultation process that's underway around the ETS scheme, you know, there's four options on the table. The conversation that I I've challenged the Minister on is, is that none of those four options actually provide any indication around what will be the impact on the cost of living uh, for consumers in order for them to be able to assess uh, what option they should be you know, thinking is best or, or uh, better than another. And uh, I think what the Minister has acknowledged is, is that, yeah, that, that isn't in place. And I think that provides a challenge because you know, we're talking about both the need to meet our emission reduction targets, but also in a context of the environment of which Kiwis are operating, which is a cost of living crisis. And so uh, you know, we need to be cognitive of this, that the emissions trading scheme doesn't sit in isolation of everything else that's going on in people's lives. James Shaw argues, though, that until now, um, governments have tried to deal with both emissions but also the cost of living issue through that single mechanism, which means compromise, not necessarily focusing on really cutting emissions. And that, in fact, he's arguing that mechanisms to help people deal with the transition need to be done separately to the ETS. I mean, do you accept that? Because otherwise, won't you always say, oh, no, cost is going to go up too much, we can't do this, but then that means you're not going to send the price signals to households and businesses to make changes to cut emissions. Yeah, look, there's a couple of aspects around how we see that. One, we see that the ETS as a, um, a market-based system uh, will, over time, deal with the emission reduction targets that we have. And, and the, it is important to recognise that that is over a period of time. What we're talking about right now is, is the implication of changes to that system and what implications those changes would have on New Zealanders who are currently dealing with a cost-of-living crisis. And I think what the point that is being made is, is that we need to be upfront with New Zealanders around the 
implications and consequences of all policy decision making that is made. And when we go through that policy decision making process, uh, what I'm calling on the Minister is, is that we need to be upfront and transparent around what are the implications of that. And at the moment, that aspect is missing uh, from the policy. And I think it's a key element that when people are considering the options, uh, they should have that information in front of them. If it works properly, though, the ETS, one of the things it'll do, won't it, will be to get companies particularly to change what they're doing. Therefore, they won't be paying those extra costs because they'll have cut their own emissions by putting in place new technologies, whether it's you know, moving from gas boilers to electric and what have you. And I mean, and in a sense, shouldn't that ameliorate some of the cost increases that people might face? Yeah, look, the ETS scheme over time will, will deal with our emission reductions targets. But we also have complementary policies, and one of those complementary policies is our Electrify New Zealand policy, which is looking at removing of the red tape for renewable energy production to fast-track uh, you know, that generation, which we're going to need to accelerate the transition from fossil fuel vehicles across to electric vehicles. So I think, you know, we've got the ETS model, we've got complementary policies that government will set around them. Uh, the areas of policy that we've been focused on to date is around removement of red tape, removement of regulation that is slowing us down, uh, but will give us the best opportunity to deal with the most significant drivers of our emission profiles, which are uh, agriculture, uh, transport and energy. Would a national-led government um, continue to subsidise business to reduce their emissions? Look, we're very clear, and I think the, the New Zealand Steel example is one of which we've been strongly opposed to. Why is, is that actually, in our view, that the option available to those organisations of transitioning and doing what is the appropriate thing to do uh, is there, and there is no uh, need or value from the taxpayer subsidising a uh, uptake of technology that is already going to be occurring or already should occur uh, by uh, a corporate. There's no market failure in that instance, but, and so but I'm not. But doesn't it help speed it up? And I mean, and I mean, I mean, there's plenty of other examples of subsidising, including from national governments. For instance, TY Point would be an example where it's done for economic reasons. So. Look, at the end of the day, uh, you know, the ETS uh, as a mechanism, uh, from our perspective, will lead to the reduction of emission targets that we are required. There is always a conversation around, you know, uh, prioritisation and trade-off on, on uh, taxpayer uh, spending. Uh, it is our view that the biggest and highest priority uh, for government spending right now is not on subsidisation of corporates that are earning you know, $1.2 billion of profit annually that could transition if they made the decision to do so. Uh, you know, and there's other mechanisms that we should deploy in order to you know, get those companies to be doing the right thing. Simon Watts, thank you for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.